0: Welcome to the podcast number 445. It's a few days before the mid-season finale of of Walking Dead and Talking Dead. Um, Robert Kirkman's going to be on, and Lauren Cohan, and a surprise cast member guest. Um, So watch that. Watch that. We will help you deal with whatever happens in the mid-season finale. I haven't seen it yet, but I have yet to see a finale uh, where... You know, they were like, oh, we're fine.
1: <laughs>
0: Everything's fine.
1: We're fine. Check back with us in a <laughs> yeah, few months. Yeah, check back with
0: us. We'll be fine in a couple months. We, yeah. you know. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't seen it yet. I'm very excited to say I can't watch ahead, Katie, because if all those facts are stuck in my head, yeah. I cannot contain them. So it's it's as much to protect me from myself <laughs> as anything else because um, I would want to talk about it. Yeah, I would want to be my own talking dead. I could just sit on a couch and stare in a mirror and be like, I'm Chris Hardwick. And then I could thank myself. Thank you, Chris Harvard, for talking <laughs> me through this. Uh, I'd like to thank HostGator for sponsoring this episode of their Podcast. Plans start at just how much, Katie?
1: Three forty-seven.
0: Damn, you're good. Yep. Uh, that's if you want to build a one-stop quality web sh- a website. That's where you would do is go to HostGator.com. They'll make it simple, and your website's going to look fantastic, and it'll be quick and painless. Let's face it, a, a good .com, there really are not that many left. No. So, why not try why not try a.net? Yeah. It's I mean, at one point it was not necessarily the same thing, but essentially it's the same thing now. Yeah,
1: and you can get the name that you want.
0: You can actually get the name that you want. Yeah. So, if you wanted to get Katieful.net, I could. That would probably sound like a, a, a an adult site. <laughs> but but if it's not, if it's just things that Katie Levine likes, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be like then that's what you would go to HostGator and get that for almost no money every month. Um so build your website, get your domain They have a drag-and-drop builder, or if you use WordPress, that's fine, too. There's no need to code. They make it super easy. Head over to HostGator.com, get some hosting, buy some .nets, and use the coupon code NERDIS to get an extra 30% off and support this very program, or programming if you're British. Uh, And this episode, speaking of British, is Thomas Dolby, and I'm I am have always been a huge, huge, huge Thomas Dolby fan. That guy to me was like a beacon for young nerds because he sort of had that kind of like steampunk, almost you know, Jules Verne time traveler, and the and the technological stuff that he was doing was above what like. He had these insane setups that no one else had. I mean, now you can just make stuff on your phone. Yeah. But he, he, would, he had this, this setup that was just hundreds of thousands of dollars to create these electronic sounds that he had. And, you know, She Blinded Me With Science, I know, is the big the big hit. But there's so many other great Thomas Dolby songs. And, like, Aliens Ate My Buick was a, an album that I listened to a shit ton when I was in high school. <laughs> um, and so I just I adore Thomas Dolby. And when we were doing the Nerdist TV show, I went over to England and I got to sit down with him. And he basically lives in this house that is uh, next to a lighthouse. And he had a tour uh, okay. called the Invisible Lighthouse yeah. Tour, which was a very interactive tour that just ended. But if he does more, you should go see them. Uh, he did one here at Hollywood Forever um, that, uh, that he did just a couple days ago here in, here in Los Angeles. But he basically – his recording studio is um, – uh, a fire ship like an old oh, wow. t- like one of those old little tugboaty, like fire fireboats yeah. boats that would you know put out other fires on other boats and so it's basically parked sort of like how a redneck would have a, like a Camaro up on blocks <laughs> he has a boat up on blocks uh, like a British like a British like a blue neck would that be right? Brit- British? Yeah. Brit- the, yeah. So uh, that's right next to these old, like, Napoleonic lighthouses that on this beach that he lives, and his recording studio is in this old boat, and I got to go hang out with him there, and we did the Nerds TV show, and it, he's so awesome. And then we just went and had tea in Thomas Dolby's house. I just had tea with him.
1: It's so British. And he
0: has these like, weird, crazy-looking contraptions. It's very much... It's, he very much seems like a mad scientist, but he's a lovely, lovely fellow, and he w- happened to be in town. And so here he is, uh, a guy that I have adored for many years. Uh, the Nerdist Podcast, number 445, with Thomas Dolby.
1: Now entering nerdist.com.
0: Was Dolby in America! I'm so excited you're here. You know I geeked out on you when I hung out with you at your house.
2: Well, where did we last meet, Chris?
0: Well, the last time we met was, uh, I was over in England shooting some stuff for BBC and we came out to your home on the beach next to the Napoleonic, uh, tower apartments. Um... And we recorded in Those your... Those aren't
3: very tall, right? <laughs> They're tall. <laughs> okay.
0: And then we recorded uh, in your lifeboat recording studio. That's we, right. We talked for about uh, a half hour, and then you made me tea. And it was, it was lovely tea. Oh, Good. <laughs> so we uh, I was glad to get you here because these guys are also on the show and, I, and this now we'll have some more time to, to talk and chat
1: so uh, they so. couldn't afford to get us all out there
3: <laughs> <laughs> they really couldn't <laughs> no they couldn't
1: yeah. it's BBC. Someone yeah. to be, to be honest our rates
3: lights. were insanely high <laughs> That's I don't know true. why we asked for yeah. a bagillion dollars
1: well we also asked for the Concorde to be reinstated and to be flown on that it didn't mm. work out yeah.
0: so are you? Uh, is, Invisible Lighthouse, is, is, is the Lighthouse Tour done for now <laughs>
2: Yeah, I just finished a three-month tour. How was it? great. Yeah, and I'm I'm a zombie, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm flying back tonight. Oh, you're going back to London oh. tonight. Mm. When you when did where did you start the tour and where did it
0: where did you guys go?
2: It actually, started in Mill Valley at the Mill Valley Film Festival in the U.S. part. I mean, I'd already done uh, I think 25 dates in the UK. Yeah, and then we went uh, across to Florida and then anti-clockwise, ending up back in california again oh wow and two shows at the hollywood forever cemetery
0: yep. oh, yeah, uh, yeah on
2: friday night which was a lot of fun and uh yeah that was the end of it which
0: i you had asked me to do and i was going i had i said yes i would love to do that and then my mom said it was the day before my birthday and she was like can we ha- do a birthday dinner and i was like oh all right and then i ended up and then my father passed away and then i ended up having to go do that so here i'm sorry to so, no that that's okay that's okay so I totally couldn't be there because of that so
1: I I totally apologize he's just excited to use an excuse that's viable right now (laughs) I mean it does I do get to play that card oh for at least three more weeks yeah
0: Three weeks?
3: You get three full weeks of excuse. I
0: feel like I get a couple months. Yeah, it's a couple months. Oh
3: no, not yet. Like I said before, Matt, you have no emotions. You have no. That's No, true. Place
0: no, to no. no. For a grandmother, you get a couple of weeks. For a father, For grandmother, I get you get a, a day months. and a half. You're a cold-hearted bastard. Uh, this is the most
3: light-hearted dark
1: conversation <laughs> I've
0: ever heard. <laughs> 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 yeah i guess t- for the tone is just like we're talking about shopping yeah that's really what we're talking about so uh how how, did, how was the show received and how, mill valley is awesome by the way
2: yeah yeah what? no it's great no uh, it's gone really well i mean uh, i i project the film and i do the soundtrack live so i'm playing the score the score and narrating the film and then i have a live foley artist on stage oh that's, oh, that's awesome rad. he's got uh, trays of leaves and pebbles from my beach and so on and he's got um <laughs> stuffed bird wings that he does that with and uh, duck calls and he does the ocean surf with a tray of bull oh, bearings wow. and stuff and he plays guitar as well that's really uh, cool that's really rad. Yeah. is it all is it all instrumental or are you singing or uh, no i'm singing there's there's like six songs uh related to the area uh that you came to um ranging from cloudburst at Shingle street and wind power that I wrote in 1980 through to, to the lifeboats and, uh, ocean that are from my last album last year.
0: Oh, wow. That is it? The, uh, the nutmeg of consolation. Correct. Yes. It's the name of the boat. <laughs> now, uh, let's talk a little, this is some of the stuff that we talked about when I chatted with you for BBC, but they could, they didn't use all of it. So I'm going to ask you some repeat questions, but hopefully you've forgotten what I asked you in the last two years. Um, where where did you start, and what was the music scene like when you when you started, and what sort of pulled you in the, the, the direction of? Because I want to hear about the. You had an insane setup. You had an insane electronic setup, pretty much before anyone else had an insane electronic setup.
2: Well, electronic keyboards and synths were very rarefied when I started out. You know, I mean, it, so we're talking mid seventies in London, and. You know, I can remember um, hearing rumours that the Beatles and the Beach Boys had used synthesizers, but the first time they were credited on an album was was Pink Floyd. You know, would mention this mysterious VCS 3. And to those of us that were into progressive music back then, this was the first time that a synth had been credited on an album. And that was terribly exciting. But they were very bulky and expensive and didn't stay in tune. And they were really the sole domain of super-rich bands and rock stars, uh, or university experimental music departments. <laughs> and uh, if you were clever, you could hang out where the skips are behind the university music departments and find circuit boards that you could take home and solder together. Oh wow. uh, You know to make your own stuff. And so there was this sort of this underground electronic wow. scene in London and uh, also up in the north of England. And this is while punk was exploding, you know, in notoriety, which, and it couldn't have been much further from punk, but there was this sort of, you know, uh, alter movement going on um, of, of um, you know, electronic pop.
0: Did traditional uh, musician, traditional bands look down on electronic music as like, well, that's not real music or would they, did, they ever, did everyone kind of think it was cool
2: at the No, time? they thought it was not real music. Hmm. They definitely thought it. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting, right? From then through about the end of the 90s, there was this permanent tussle going on between sort of indie guitar drum bands and electronic artists. And um, But it was sort of, in a way, electronic music was legitimized, well, by two things, one, one in the 70s, one in the 80s. The, the move in the 70s was Bowie going to Berlin with Eno. And he had been influenced by kraut rock bands, you know, Mm -hmm. Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk and so on. And uh, he was making pop records, you know, with all electronics, which were making it in the charts, you know, things like sound and vision and so on. So that was a big deal because Bowie had always been like a mentor, you know, to my generation, uh, sort of musically and fashion wise. And so the fact that he'd gone over to electronics after, you know, really at the peak of his success with Young Americans and fame and stuff like that, you know, over here, he went to Berlin and did this sort of obscure electronic stuff. So that was exciting. The other key moment really was uh, when the dregs of Joy Division, who are really the perennial sort of indie band, uh, reformed as New Order and started making electronic disco, you know, dance music with things like, um, you know, uh, 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 Power Corruption and Lies, which is the album that... um, uh, you know that that their biggest hits came from, and they were using synths and sequences, and that was really exciting.
3: There was uh, there was something that uh, I never thought about or heard about, and they showed it kind of for a second in the twenty four hour party people movie, where they it's, did they do you think did a uh, new order write the songs on guitars and then transfer it over and like record them digitally. I think it was probably that
2: they, they would get synth grooves going in the studio and then jam along on guitar, because it's hard to jam with sequences. You yeah, know? But, yeah. But if you play along with guitar, you can do that, yeah.
3: And... Um you were saying like the whole punk thing was going on so like the electronic scene was like its own separate thing with its own separate shows and yeah. stuff like yeah yeah oh definitely yeah and, and you know a lot of electronic music at
2: the time was about the coldness and the alienation you know it was it was gary newman up there with lots of eyeliner with blaring neon lights behind him blasting out and blinding you and it was it's was really about coldness and alienation yeah that wasn't me though i mean i was more into the the warmth i was basically a songwriter that you know 10 years earlier i would have been at the piano like elton john or billy joel or something like that but now there was the availability of synths that gave me a wider palette but i came at it from a different angle
3: yeah yeah and because like uh and gary newman he's with well, the two-way army was still pretty like that was pretty guitar driven before he turned into just going solo with a lot of the digital stuff right exactly yeah, yeah yeah but it was really it was really you know his performances
2: on top of the pops that sort of you know gave that whole thing its lift off
0: oh really That's and then I mean. where does jeff lynn come in to where does he slide into all that stuff
2: he's everywhere well i mean <laughs> not really he was we had, we associated him with a previous generation you know um because the uh uh electric light orchestra were a pop group that used orchestral instruments used electronics he's a brilliant producer you know did some pretty amazing things he experimented with vocoders on Mr Blue Sky and stuff like that but it wasn't pure electronic music uh you know and so we didn't really associate with with him
0: did you have? Did you ever play with Bowie or hang out or hang out with Bowie?
2: Yeah, I played with Bowie at Live Aid in 1985. Oh my god!
0: Was it the first time you had met him, or had you met
2: him before? No, I met him four days before Live Aid. <laughs> um, you know, he he. They announced Live Aid, and it all happened very, very quickly, as you probably know from the documentaries and history books. But he was in England at the time, shooting a movie called Labyrinth. Yes, that he acted in at uh, Pinewood or Elstree Studios, one of the you know studios outside London. And his regular touring band were not available. And so he asked me to help him put together a band in a hurry. And at the time, you know, I think he thought it was going to be a promotional opportunity. So he had a current single, Loving the Alien, which is sort of lost in the sands of time, which he wanted us to play because he said he'd be promoting his current single. But as he got focused on it he realized it was bigger than that it wasn't about that it was about the anthems yeah. and so he kept changing his mind about what songs to do and this band that I had you know that, that all had grown up adoring him hanging on his every word we knew all the songs but we never got to rehearse them you know because up until the night before Live Aid he was changing his mind about what songs to do um, but he was very debonair and gentlemanly about it and it was odd because there was a BBC documentary called Cracked Actor that you may have seen where it was just him as the thin white duke at the height of his, uh, <laughs> of, of his addiction and so on. And there's this famous scene from it where he's got this long, long stretched limousine and he's in the back, this tiny figure and he's got a carton of milk and he's completely strung out and he's going <laughs> there's a fly in my milk. I'm, <laughs> I'm like that fly. And, and I was expecting the cracked actor, you know, but instead it was, it was like Edward Fox, you know, was this sort of guy. And the one time that he was like the cracked actor, we took a helicopter into Wembley Stadium, and it was only a 10-minute flight from, from uh, but and he's terrified of flying. And during that time, his hat was pulled down over, his head his chain-smoking, he's going, can we land here, please? You're so, <laughs> smoking in the helicopter? Yeah, yeah, and the pilot was going, it's really bad for the avionics. <laughs> Mr. Bowie, could you extinguish your cigarette? It's bad for my avionics. <laughs> Sod off. He'll <laughs> be a lot nicer when we land. He's going to be a lot nicer.
0: I mean, I, I, well, especially at the, by that point, he had already broken way mainstream. And I guess uh, from what I've read or what I understand was he had come out of that period of, like, let's dance and all that. Where And he wasn't really happy about that explosion of his his pop career. I'm not sure
2: point. if he was ever happy. I mean, the guy's naturally... Uh so uncomfortable, he's got to move on to the next thing, you know, and and carve out the next chapter.
0: So when, you, when did you start kind of finding, you know, going from tinkering with electronics to finding what it was that was your sound? Because you, for me, you as a guy who was so enamored of what I didn't realize at the time were sort of, you know, nerdy, heady things... Your persona was very much this kind of like nerdy mad scientist mm. guy. Mm. And so I loved watching you as much as I enjoyed the music. Mm. So was that was that just a a natural extension of who you are? Or do you do you feel like, you know, did you sort of search for the persona or where did what happened?
2: You know, and when I started performing as a soloist, I looked at sort of pin-up uh pop stars like adamant or sting or simon le bon and i thought well i'm i'm never going to compete in those stakes so it's better to draw something out from inside me now i'm from a very literal literary background my father was a professor of classical archaeology at oxford university my mother taught calculus uh, you know there's there's more PhDs in my family than I can that I can count and uh, a totally non-show business background you know if we were watching an old film as a family six kids in the family we'd be watching an old movie and if the orchestra welled up because somebody was about to break into song we everybody got embarrassed <clears throat> tea darling
1: <laughs> sort of right?
2: but I was I was like sucking it all up like a sponge I'd be up on the coffee table you know trying to copy Fred and Ginger's steps you know mm. and, and singing along with with some you know pathetic you know song but um so i was i was really drawn to that showbiz side and, and and i'm basically although i'm basically introverted i have this sort of exhibitionist streak that comes out from time to time
0: in front of is, is it activated when you get in front of like because it's it's funny that people you know i find sometimes that i'm uncomfortable with people one-on-one mm. but i could there could i could there could be ten thousand people in the audience and i would feel totally fine <laughs>
2: Well, a 10,000-person audience is very anonymous in some ways. You know, it's like it's surreal, I think. You know, I think a small audience is a lot harder sometimes. You can see individual faces. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm less socially able, you know, and, um, when I'm just with, with one person or with a few people. So I'm, I'm certainly like that. Um, it, you know, I have this odd creative process where I visualize an empty spotlight on a stage. And a guy walks into the spotlight and starts singing a song. What does it sound like? I just strain my ears and I try and hear that first chord, you know, and the first line of vocals. And that's how I write. So it's like I work backwards from, you know, there needs to be a stage. And I work backwards from the stage. And what are we going to fill that space with? Yeah.
0: When was What was the first song that you remember where you really started to feel like, oh, I, I think I'm on to something. I think there is a there is an there is an active vein, there is an ore underneath this that I really feel like I can mine for a while. What yeah, well it?
2: I mean, you know, it was in the early days as a songwriter, I guess a lot of songwriters like this, it was bits and pieces of things. It was an intro here, it was a chorus there, you know, I couldn't really string it all together. But I think I sort of learned my craft as a songwriter when I when I was still not twenty yet, I toured the US as a keyboard player with a band called Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club. And we were supporting Lena <laughs> Love it. She was a bit of a punk diva, a sort of punk cabaret diva back then. And was she was on the Stiff label, you know, so she's label mates with, you know, Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe and people like that. Um, and we toured with her. And uh, it's just when the Porter Studio had come out. The Porter Studio was a four track cassette machine. You could It only would record on one side, but you know a stereo cassette has got four tracks in it, right? Two mm-hmm. on each side. So it would use all four tracks. So it allowed you to do multi-track taping. It had a little mixer built into it. So I had this in my hotel room on tour and a little drum machine, and I was writing songs, and I was very impressed with Lena. I was trying to write songs that I could give to Lena that she would be interested in covering. And I wrote a song called New Toy, and Lena covered it. I played on it, and it went in the charts. Wow. And so that was really the start of everything for me.
0: Well, when did you decide, I think I want to be the guy, I think I want to step out and be the solo artist?
2: Uh, you know, I, I so... That attracted some attention in the industry, and as a keyboard player, I was starting to get hired for sessions. Uh, I, I made cassette, I made these cassettes, and I sent them around record companies and publishers, and was getting nowhere. And it, I nearly got a deal, and then it fell through on the day before, and I was badly in debt. And I left London and hitched a ride to Paris in the back of a chicken lorry uh, <laughs> on the ferry, because uh, I got a, a friend of my school friend of mine was working as a busker, you know, a street musician in, in the Paris Metro, and he showed me the ropes and he taught me how to, bi- how to busk. And so I spent six months in Paris, uh, you know, playing Dylan songs for Japanese tourists. Um, but in the midst of all of this, I got a call from somebody in England saying, Mick Jones wants you, he wants you to do a session. I'm thinking, The Clash! Yes! <laughs> uh, and it turned out to be the other Mick Jones. Uh, al- also a Brit in a band called Foreigner, and who I'd never heard of, actually, because they were not successful in the UK. And I heard their music, and it was this sort of, uh, you know, hardish rock you know radio rock aor and they summoned me to new york and they l- would leave me all night in the studio just to fill up tracks you know it was the days of you know 2 inch tape and they'd say we got these five tracks these seven tracks and they'd go away and come back in the morning wow. to see what I'd done and it was the first time I'd spent a lot of time in a recording studio, so I would just be experimental. Yeah? They gave me like a menu, like a takeout food menu of all the synths that I could rent. So i go, oh, wow. hmm, well, tonight I'll have an OBXA and I'll have a, 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 a four-voice uh, polymoog. And, and I'd just call these things in and I'd just play around with them. Did you know what they were at the time? Yeah, I knew what they were, but I'd I read about them in magazines. I'd never had my hands on one. And, uh, and so I just messed around. Uh, are you familiar with a song of theirs called Waiting for a Girl Like You? Oh, wait, of course. Yeah. Okay, so that was a ballad, you know, nee-num, when it came. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, is that
0: you playing? Yeah. Oh, that's so, awesome. Well, and the
2: intro before that, which is like this sort of ambient, almost like Eno-esque, you know, floaty intro before that. And and I dreamed up this technique. Do you know what a mellotron is? Yeah. Okay. So a mellotron has a, a recording of a note of let's say flute. You know, a flute plays an A. You record it for fifteen seconds. When you play the key, a little tape recorder plays that thing, right? So "Strawberry Feels Forever" mm-hmm, is the yeah. famous example of that, right? Paul so has, I thought Paul well, has the mellotron. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that you could uh, you could create a sort of a, a studio mellotron by recording a single note of synth on each track of a multi-track tape recorder, and then use the faders on the mixing console, push them up and down to play chords...
0: Oh, that's oh. Wow. Right? oh yeah.
2: So I'd always wanted to do this, right? So I got a mini moog and I recorded a bunch of notes, and then using the faders, I pushed them up and down, and I recorded the intro to "Waiting for a Girl Like You." And, and I, you know, I really didn't think that I thought they'd be upset that I'd spent all night. Doing it, you know? But they came in and said, "That's great. That's going, we're going to go with that. That's going to be the single." You know. Do so, you get wow. any writing credit on that when you create no, that? No, no, because as a session player, you, you know, you you're hired for your ability to come up with interesting parts. So. Oh, that's so, really that's really fascinating. He's
1: like Vic Flick, but with a, with a synthesizer.
2: And so, uh, so did you do the did you do the whole album for them or did you, what? Yeah, well, they actually, they hired me for a night, but they liked it and they said, "Can you stay and do the rest of the album?" I said, "Well, at that price, certainly, <laughs> and
1: more
2: money I've <laughs> ever earned in my life, you know, playing music." And so I play. I stayed for a month, did the whole album, and went home with a pocket full of cash, with which I recorded my first album. Oh wow! So nice. I just, uh, and I owned the tapes for those. So, and then, you know, their album came out. I had this Lena thing that had done well, and the record companies were coming to me, and I had a, an album pre made. And I said, Well, this is, this is what you're buying into, you know? So I was able to write my own ticket. What year was that? 1980. Oh, that was 80 was no. was she blinding me of science on that album no no, no 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 so well so it wasn't initially so the album came out as the golden age of wireless and it, and it was critically very well acclaimed and it sold about three copies <laughs> and, um, the critics uh, the three yeah. critics but what was going on at the time was um uh mtv was starting to get into the big cities you know starting to be influential and i thought i'd like to have a crack at doing a music video so i wrote a storyboard for a music video about this home for a deranged scientist and all the rest of it. And I wanted to hire this guy, Magnus Pike, who was a BBC <laughs> staple back then. And I took it to the record company and they said, hmm, interesting. Where's the song? And I said, uh, I'll bring it in on Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I went home for the weekend and wrote She Blinded with Science. And it was like, <laughs> I needed to or else they wouldn't give me the budget to make a video. Wow. That's wow. so So
3: bad. you had the stage before you
2: had the song. Yeah, but yeah. just
0: But writing the story, like writing the visual story first mm. and then... Going, oh, I gotta fit something that right. makes sense with this with this yeah. story. Right. I mean, it's I remember backwards.
2: storing it, storyboarding it, and I was on the couch, and I had this doctor that was like cross-examining me, and then I started like drawing this this Japanese assistant in a lab coat, and she blinded me with science. That's and that. then for yeah. the
0: rest yeah. of Mag- Magnus Pike's life, people shouted science at him on the. Oh, God, it's
2: like, <laughs> <laughs> why are you doing that? He was so upset because he would just, you know, he he people would come up behind him, you know, on the sidewalk.
3: Science. <laughs> 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 half out of his
2: skin. And he he was incredulous because he felt and he said to me, you know, it would appear that your bloody MTV video is better known over there than my body of academic work. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, as an academic he probably wasn't too keen on that. Uh, well, you know, I mean, with all respect to Bill Nye, you know, it's like you, you know him as a as a character, a personality and a celebrity, you know, you don't really look up how many theses he's been had published. And right.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, I know at that time, or at least from what what I understand, from what I've read, um, that so much of the music that essentially drove new wave and and pop culture at the time came from England because a lot of the American a lot of the American artists were like music television. That sounds dumb, but the British artists, like you know, you guys and Duran Duran and Buggles and Trevor Horn, all those people were like, "Oh, this sounds really interesting." Like you guys were super experimental with it. And so that's why that first that first essentially new wave of music was mm. like Brit Brit British pop music.
2: Yeah, I think we were just quick to jump onto things. I mean, things generally spread ideas spread faster in the UK because there were at the time, especially there's only two or three ways that you would get your information. You know, it was mm. two, there were two music music shows on TV: Top of the Pops and uh, the Old Grey Whistle Test, which is the late night stoners thing. You know, so you you know you would get uh, you know you get. Um, electric light orchestra on top of the pops and you'd get Genesis on the Old Grey Whistle Test and it wasn't in the newspapers at all so the moment there's a good idea it was all over the island all over the country in no time you know the nightclub owners the journalists the t-shirt manufacturers everybody would jump onto something so we, we, we didn't have our own MTV at the time where there's no cable in the UK but here's the thing if you were unavailable if you're someone in the charts you're unavailable for top of the pops they would show your video if you could prove that you're off touring somewhere or whatever. So, suddenly, after Top of the Pops is already getting quite stayed by then, it was always the same thing, you know, screaming kids down the front, the flashing lights, the mirror balls, et etc. Not very subversive, you know. But if you said, if you're someone in the charts, they booked you for Top of the Pops, you say, well, oh, unfortunately, the band's touring South America this week, you know, but here's a video. The BBC started showing videos, so you know, to an extent, we were aware of MTV. But it, part of it was like a ruse, so you could get something cooler on top of the pops oh, wow. than just them doing it in the
1: studio. Wow. yeah
0: well, well, yeah, because I don't—I know people made videos before. I mean, there there were definitely videos being made before mm-hmm. MTV. But I—but I don't know where like
1: the Beatles did "Rain" for Ed Sullivan because they weren't around to do it. They made okay. a quick video for "Rain." Black Sabbath and had a couple of videos too. Mm.
0: There were videos, and a lot of them were concert, Beatles were first
1: guys. Beatles, <laughs>
0: but uh, but. I, but I guess there really just wasn't – there just wasn't – I don't know what they did with videos before then, before, you know, Top of the Pops and MTV. I think they were just promotional, like maybe you just sent them to – I don't know – record labels
2: or something? Yeah, I don't know how they use them anyway. I mean, there's a lot of shots of, you know, up the guitarist's trouser leg during the solo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, not many people writing stories and coming up with concepts around them, you know. And and I think there was, you know, there was a honeymoon period after that where serious artists took an interest in their videos, you know, be it Peter Gabriel or Talking Heads or Laurie Anderson, etc., you know, where it's like, wait, I'm not just going to let my label hire any old company to come in and make a video for me. I'm going to write this myself, you know, I'm going to come up with a concept so it's an an extension of what's in the song, what's in the music and that was a a really special period actually, you know, it was still undefined anything goes, anything could go there were gizmos coming out, you know, like Harry boxes and blue screen stuff and so on that you could get creative with and it still felt subversive, you know, because the mainstream stuff you didn't. We, we were doing stuff that you didn't see in commercials, in car commercials and things, you know. Whereas nowadays, of course, you know, the state of the art is going to be in like a car commercial or something that has a big budget or a big feature film.
0: Well, it's. I think in the same way, I, I you know, the same way that we've seen sort of a paradigm shift in the last ten years of. Uh, it's, it's like every decade an artist has to tack on more and more skill sets mm. to really break through. So mm. watching the difference between the 70s and the 80s of just being in a band to, well, now you're in a band, but also you kind of have to be visual as well. Mm. And now it's the same thing. You have to be visual and you're in a band and you have to know how to market yourself. Like it's just all the things that I think that – Record labels or, you know, managers or agencies used to do salt for the artist. Now the artist essentially has to do mm-hmm. everything. Well, like, mm-hmm. uh,
3: you know, the story of Christopher Cross, where he was just selling a ton of records. And, and then viewed videos. And then everyone saw what he looked like, and none of the girls wanted to listen to it anymore. Right. <laughs> it's such yeah. a sad... Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, video... I think uh, music, music, videos, music videos hurt a lot of people, but then this whole other generation...
3: Well, now um, it's like... It's every band that comes out. It's like they have to look like models. It's kind of ridiculous. You see any new band out. It's... I mean... I think, like, you know, half of Arcade Fire is weird looking, but the other half, they're really good looking. You know, it's just like there needs to be, it's 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 so visual, which is so odd because that's the opposite of what music kind of is, you know. Mm. Because you can listen to music anywhere, but you only have to be one place to see it. Mm. And the fact that, like, you know, it's like visually you have to be a good looking person. But you know what? I don't think that's new, though. No.
2: I think the Rolling Stones, you know, benefited from the fact that they were that they looked good as well. That's a, you that's know, they didn't difficult. look like male models, that's for sure, yeah. you know, but they looked charismatic and they were interesting to
3: look at. Yeah. I want to get a collection of like all the weirdest like the goofiest faces the Beatles ever made because they were just supposed to be the cute <laughs> boys, but like you look at pictures and they're always just like, "Huh?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were you
0: were you aware at the time so when when She Blinded Me with Science broke? Were you aware, like, oh, I think we're, I think there's a revolution that is happening right now. Did it feel that way at the time?
2: No, it didn't feel like a revolution at all. Actually, in as much as I can remember, what it really felt like at all, uh, it, no, not a revolution. I mean, it, it was. Well, it, what was quite interesting was that I was getting kudos from odd. Places, You know, I was getting people like George Clinton and Michael Jackson sort of complimenting me on my grooves, you know, and that was kind of nice. And the song was crossing over into into, you know, pretty nasty clubs in the South Bronx and so on. So that (laughs) that was all quite cool, you know, for a sort of a middle class English boy. You know, that was definitely quite exciting.
0: Was it uh, did you enjoy being a pop star or was it awkward or what is it?
2: No, I didn't. I was awkward. It felt like I was in a fishbowl. Really, you know. I mean, I I wore little round glasses at the time, and people would just sort of their jaws would drop if I walked in a room, and the, nobody was normal with me, you know. So it didn't feel good, really. It didn't, you know. I did, it wasn't something that suited me naturally.
0: So when you say that they weren't normal towards you, like what you mean? They they were just. Uh... Uh i don't know were they awkward or were they were they super ass kissy or were they douchey or like what is how is it that they all,
2: all of the above
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: i mean my fans have always been quite polite you know they're not the kind that would rip you to shreds right uh but in the industry you know i mean i, I must have let, met a couple of dozen record company executives each of which was the one that discovered me oh sure you know uh, um and and they hug you you know and it, and it they're greasy you know it, co- it, it costs you a fortune in dry cleaning fees you know it's like uh, these beautiful suits and everything but like after a record company meeting
1: come away, it's like, I
0: bet they just thought that was I mean like if in the 70s and the 80s I bet like the, the record label system that must they must have just thought like this is never gonna end this is, n- this is always going to be amazing because people are always right. going to want music yeah. and we're always going to control <clears throat> everything yeah. and it's never going to go away. Like What it- else can I get made of
2: gold? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Well, I mean, and they, it was true because there was only one way to get music out to the public. I mean, it was, it was a process, but it started with, you know, a pressing plant, fleets of trucks, and manufacturing relationships with retail stores and malls, relationships with radio programmers. I put relationships in quotes there. Um, You know, often involving brown envelopes or getting somebody's speedboat berthed or getting their kids through college or whatever. And basically, they could pick or choose. You know, they they got thousands of tapes through the door and a guy would sit there and listen to them and, and pick something out and they'd pluck pluck out you know 50 artists and that would be the public's choice at any given point in time you know these are the 50 artists we will give you to choose between and each one of them we've invested a million or more dollars in to put them in the studio and get them on the road and you know print out their satin tour jackets and all the rest of it and it's like they so they were the the king makers really wow. and they must have believed that they had it all sewn up because there was only half a dozen companies capable of doing that although they were competitive the bosses all met and played tennis or golf at the weekends and if they needed to change something they could do it in a sort of oligopicalistic way is that a word <laughs> let's say it, it can be, be. Ola, oligarch oligarchistic (laughs) oligopoly oligopoly monopolistic oligopolistic
0: yes i like it so uh was there did they lean on you to well you have to do this kind of music or you have to follow up with this or did they were you pretty much were you pretty much on your own well
2: they assumed after the success of she blinded me with science that i would milk that formula yeah, you know, that was just an assumption. The formula of the music video? and Well, or... and and uh, they didn't out and say this, but, you know, behind my back they'd be saying, right, what made it? It was quirky, British, funky pop, you know, synth uh-huh. pop, um, underdog character, you know, wacky hair, uh, fun video. Let's go do that another 12 times, uh-huh. you know. And, and the assumption was in the music business that, you know, you work so hard to break something through that once you actually nail it, You know, you're going to refine that formula and do it over and over again. But the thing was, you know, I'm naturally adventurous. And that was, you know, She me Science was just one of a dozen things that I was trying out, you know, at the time. And I wanted to move on. In fact, the next real sort of uh, chapter of my music career was a lot more personal, a lot more organic, you know, more atmospheric songs. And uh, this didn't really fall in with their ideas. Now, they weren't able to lean on me. They weren't able to you know deprive me of my salary or anything I and mean, they had no way of exerting pressure on me other than the lack of cooperation um you know i had i had a song after that called hyperactive which yes. shot shot into the charts and then mysteriously fell you know like in the third week when it was absolutely on this trajectory you know we were saying number 1 you know and all the rest of it, it was getting played all over the radio mysteriously dropped Ten places in the charts, and it turned out to be because of a political battle that was going on between the labels and the radio programmers. Ugh. Ugh. And uh, so, and, and you know, when something goes wrong, you do a post mortem on it and you analyze all the reasons why it went wrong. You know, when something goes right, you just pat each other on the back and say we're great. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you never analyze it and figure out well, you know, how did how did that happen?
0: <laughs> Can you figure that out though? I mean, is it is it is it lightning in a bottle, or do you think that it is? Do you think that? if you had enough data points that
2: you could figure it out? No, I don't think you can figure I think lightning in a bottle is closer, you know, and in fact what I've seen in other eras of my career, you know, like in the tech world and so on, it's like history will always record that some genius in a garage, you know, sort of like invented something, but in reality it was lightning in a bottle. It was a complete serendipitous moment, and uh, history is, is the one that's at fault because, you know, i mean i'll give you an example right so history will record that steve jobs single-handedly invented the digital music business whereas in reality apple put out a new the newton in 1988 or something i, ha- I Com- had one complete and utter catastrophe it's a disaster didn't work properly they had to recall them everybody hated them they got slagged off steve jobs was out um Lecky, whatever his name was, came in, and then during the '90s, people started messing around with gadgets. You got the Palm Pilot, you know. You got you got uh, these little devices and stuff. And somebody at Apple was going, "We're never going there again." (laughs) You know, keep out of the out of the miniature, you know, mobile hardware business. And in the music world, you know, we had MP3.com, we had Napster, we had the record companies suing Napster, the record companies owning Napster, starting their own portal. It was all just. A complete disaster nothing was working at all everybody was exhausted so one day you know apple walks in and goes um excuse me and we'd actually like to try a a digital music service ourselves and go take it whatever (laughs) (laughs) good luck to you you know nice to get it off my plate and so they came in like years and years after everybody else you know had tried and failed to establish a digital music business and they got it right with the ipod and itunes and now own whatever it is, 78% of the market. And the history books were record. In fact, Steve Jobs' biographies already record this, that he single-handedly
1: created the digital music business. Like early on, they were always like, they "Here's known- a color. Here's a color display. Here's you know, here's the Newton. Here's this printer. Here's this thing." Because they, were they as, used to make. They were known as yeah. the innovators. Yeah, and but
0: it- they but they took from they they, they took the they took that well, original they took UI. The OS from,
1: Xerox. from Xerox. Yes, but as far as getting a marketable home PC, that was like that was their thing. And then they were like, "Let's do this. Let's make you know, it was Lucy was yeah, mm-hmm. like you know, we'll do the Lisa will be color, and then this will be that, and that, and that. We'll get it out to the schools. That was their big ploy was to give." Give it to schools so that kids would only know Apple. Mm. You know that was sort of their plan. Didn't really work. But uh, when that when that stuff happened in the early '90s and the late '80s with like the Newton and the stuff like that, and then that failed, and then they ousted Jobs. Then they sort of took a different approach, which kind of became it was it sort of for a little while up to like '95 '96 when you start seeing the PowerBook pop up in Mission Impossible. And Independence, Independence Day. Independence Day, yeah. You know, and it's like, that's what saves the world is the fucking Macintosh <laughs> PowerBook Because the PC world was making cheaper, 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 cheaper. If you look at it, Apple, it was always $2,500. You still look now, it's $2,500. Right. It never got any cheaper. Uh, and then they sort of, it, nothing was working. So then they started to put it into movies, put it into TV show. And that's where all their big, all their marketing money in those days, went to getting it into television and movies.
2: But here's the thing. So I formed a, a tech company in Silicon Valley in the early 90s. And in the early days when I was talking to investors, my board members would come in and they, and they said to me after bringing in a potential investor one time, look, next time we bring somebody in, can you get the Apple's Macs off the, off the desks? Like, <laughs> We maybe buy some cheap PCs and we'll let you know if we bringing an investor and put your programmers on PCs, because it's bad enough that that we're asking them to invest in a company you know whose business is music. <laughs> 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 let alone if they see Macs on the desktops, they're going to think you're just dreamers. That was a huge, yeah, and that was a huge stigma too uh, that you don't me, remember. Who's the biggest company in the world right now and what what was their killer app?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's crazy because my dad worked for Hewlett Packard when I was right. a kid. Right. And oh, Hewlett Packard would say, you
2: know, because they would hire me as a consultant and they'd listen to what I had to say. And then they'd end up saying, nah, you know what? People get kind of annoyed when we put loudspeakers in our computers because <laughs> the guy, like in the next cubicle, gets upset because he's trying to crunch numbers in his database and there's music coming out you know so it's kind of really better for our customers if they're silent wow is that
0: so they they hired you to to try to figure out how to uh, create entertainment uh, with the machines
2: as well no not entertainment uh it was the implementation of audio they needed something to set them apart you know and so they because everybody was microsoft intel you know, Wintel, as it was known. So computer makers were looking for ways to set themselves apart. So they would think, well, do we need to do more with entertainment? You know, should we bundle movies or DVD games, you know, with our machines and stuff like that? So they, they were looking for any kind of an edge. And I was up there in Silicon Valley, but I was from the entertainment world. And, that you know, the, the, ne'er the two shall meet at that point.
0: And so did you actively seek to consult or did people start approaching you? He's like, oh, I think Thomas Dolby knows... Um, a little
2: bit of both. Uh, you know, I I, uh, I got an offer from uh, Interval Research, which is a research company founded by Paul Allen, who was the you know sure. the other the other Microsoft founder and uh, it was it was in the mod, in the mode of Xerox Park you know and it was very close same street actually but they hired me to basically try and come up with some interesting interactive music applications so I had a little team of 10 programmers and we basically we came up with apps that are just like what you'd buy on your iPhone now for 99 cents you know like here are some blobs you move them around and you remix music and you send it to your friends or whatever we were doing that you know on on the web basically in the middle of the 90s and of course nobody wanted to pay for it what would happen is we'd take it to Netscape or Yahoo or AOL and they, some middle management guy would look me in the eye and he'd go, wow, this guy's gotten VCs to fund this cool game. And I'm going to make sure that we have it, and I'm going to put the Yahoo logo on it and pretend it's ours. And his VCs are going to pay for the whole thing. I'm going to look like a god. So basically, you know, we we had millions and millions of eyeballs because we had these great deals with all these people, and we were using our own funding to pay for it. It was the most disastrous (laughs) business model, And it should have gone up in smoke at the end of the 90s like, you know, most other – Ridiculous dot coms did. Um, but we had one deal out of when the dust settled out of all of this. We'd made a little synthesizer that was as small as you could make it, you know, smallest footprint, bits and bytes shaved off here and there, so that you could download it in a web page. So it would basically let you click on things and it would down, come in your browser, it would download and install itself as a plug in And because we've made it really small and efficient, it was exactly what the world's largest mobile phone company needed to play ringtones in their phone. So along came Nokia and said, hey, could you send some engineers out to Finland and see if you can shoehorn your little synth into our phones? And we did that, and we did that deal. And when the bubble burst at the end of the century we had one deal that made sense with somebody that would actually pay decent money, and that was with Nokia.
0: And you wrote all those original ringtones that came...
2: Mm, no. I, I wrote some of them. I wrote some of them. I, I programmed... Uh, well, my team programmed most of them, including the, the infamous nokia uh polyphonic ringtone was that the i didn't write that was written in the 19th century And actually the, okay back to the lightning in a bottle all right so here's the thing i'm going to tell you the story of that ringtone okay right? okay you can always edit it out later. no no
0: no it's, i want to keep it
2: <laughs> all right so circa i would say 1992 or 93 nokia had only one building at that point even though they were already the world's largest mobile phone company they were all in one building outside of um uh Oslo, and one night uh, a marketing guy is walking past the lab and he hears what he thinks is music coming out and he pokes his head around the door and says, oh, you got it playing music now. And an engineer with a screwdriver is going, no, I'm just trying to figure out which the most annoying frequency is for the ring. <laughs> and the marketing guy says, oh, but you should get it to play tunes. Could you do that? And he goes, hmm. Yeah, I could probably do that. And so, he programs in some tunes, gives the d- the device to the marketing guy, who takes it into a marketing meeting, and they say, "This is great musical ringtones, fantastic. Uh, let's ship it." And the lawyers come in and go. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't just ship music on a phone. <laughs> you know, we the lawyers, of course, always want to get involved. Oh, oh why not well you'd have to pay millions and do deals with sony and warners and all the writers and stuff and somebody says well what about if it's a dead guy and they said well that's probably okay if he's been dead for 75 years so well your tunes are any of those by dead guys Hmm. yes this one that goes diddly diddly diddly, diddly." why don't we just ship it with that and see how it goes oh my god who was the dead guy uh, i can 't remember his name grand vals is the name of the thing, but he 's he 's a waltz composer, like a contemporary of Johann Strauss or something you know? <laughs> um, and so they shipped it, and it became you know the most successful jingle of all time wow, wow. so so you know complete um you know complete lightning in a bottle wow.
0: and then of course uh uh That all exploded, and then now, then they did figure out how to license all the stuff, and they did figure out how to bring the lawyers in. And
2: well, we, we, you know, my company was successful during a a, a narrow window where the ringtones were still bleeps. You know, Mm -hmm. we put this little very, very simplistic synth in their phones, and they started shipping them in mass market phone. There was no audio chip in there. There was no sound blaster card in there. They didn't want the expense of sound blaster. You know, they didn't want the the uh, liability of buying a chip from Yamaha or somebody whose plant could get hit by a monsoon and blow their whole thing so it had to be in the on the CPU of the actual phone itself, which is a puny little processor. So we got four voices going for that ringtone thing, and that was the best we could do. And it was kind of a MIDI set of sounds, but it was a subset. So, you know, piano also worked for guitar and oboe and various other things. (laughs) Um, And uh, so they shipped all of these things, and there was a period of time where all of their competitors came and licensed it as well uh, to keep up with Nokia. But then I I didn't like the way they sounded, so I actually... It created a new file format uh, along with my engineers called RMF, which included samples. So now you could—it's like a, its like the first Fairlight, really. it was the first time you could actually play samples of real recordings in a phone. And ironically, that I shot myself in the foot because it went from there. All they had to do was multiply the numbers and go from thirty-two to sixty-four to one hundred twenty-eight k, you know, capacity. And suddenly, now you could use real recordings. You could use, you know, actual. George Michael in your phone instead of <laughs> instead of a bleepy rendition of "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go," you know you could have, and, but having an actual recording meant going to Sony and licensing the masters. So now suddenly. It was all about the big record companies and the telcos, you know, so it was Sony and, and, you know, Verizon doing deals directly with each other. And there was no need for this sort of cottage market that we would created with the Bleepy ringtones. Was, so,
0: was there any way that when looking back, is there anything you go, oh, I could I should have done this with, yeah. that
2: you could have jumped into? Yeah. Yeah. In, in <laughs> hindsight, you know. But nobody's that clever, really. If anybody tells you there was a master plan, you know, there was no master plan. Well, that's part of the lightning in the water. You can't know that that's going to happen. You can't no. know that that's going to catch on. No. You probably... It's probably... The key, actually, probably is just being very alert to when the lightning strikes in a bottle, you know? Right. There, and then focusing all your energy onto that before you before your bank account runs out.
0: Well, you can't you can't know any better that something is going to catch on than that than that that dead composer who could have said someday <laughs> everyone's going to know the song, They're right? Not going to, right. he just had no way, you just you just have no way of knowing. Since okay, so since you since you innovate in that way and you innovate with sound uh, is there was there ever anything that you we're working on that. You really thought, like, this is going to be the thing that 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 never caught on. Like, was do you have like a a personal pet project that you are like, shit? It just I just haven't found the right way to make this work yet.
2: I am bad at timing. You know, it's like I am usually spot on with what's going to happen, but I am just very bad about when it's going to happen. And you know, I mean, an example would with that would be that in in about nineteen ninety two, ninety three, you could download compressed music files from CompuServe, and people were doing it. So you'd think, wow, well, everybody's on the Internet. Uh, You can compress, you can rip a CD and put it online on a a forum or something, and everybody can get their music for free. And uh, this is going to go absolutely postal, you know, overnight. But years later, it still hadn't caught on. And then, you know, several years later, for no apparent reason that I could make out, suddenly it exploded. Suddenly the downloading phenomenon just caught fire and it was everywhere. It was every time you open the newspaper, it was about the piracy thing, you know, about the statistics, the music com- music companies losing money and stuff like that. And I have no idea to this day what triggered the actual explosion. Because I thought, well, maybe this is never going to happen. I was bemused by it. I spent at least two or three years thinking, how come that didn't happen? And then suddenly it went off. It's like when you light a firework, you know, and everybody stands back <laughs> and you think, oh, it's fizzled. And then somebody approaches it. And
3: <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's... Uh because I remember for a long time, you had to have a special disc-burning uh, you know, drive outside your computer, but then all of a sudden computers just have a thing where you could just put a CD in, and it would put the songs onto it. Do you think that's what finally made... Like, now everyone's pouring music onto their computers digitally. I Do don't you, know. I don't, I don't know, know if that's what I think what it might it have been a
0: generational thing. I think it was maybe the right age group sort of coming of age mm. around 97, 98, 99... Mm. And then kind of going, well, I don't want to fucking pay for music. I, I think before that people were, st- I don't know, and and maybe and then those those young people creating a, a much easier, more viable delivery hmm. service. I because I, I, I always think the idea needs the right platform. Yeah, much in the same that you know everyone's trying to figure out digital content and how do you monetize digital content and how do you, you know, and and I still feel like the right platform hasn't really come along yet much in the way that podcasting was essentially just um you know weird aug vorbis super early adopter niche file formats and until itunes was like here is an easy delivery system for all this shit over here that it just the right idea needs the right delivery Mm -hmm. system and those are two kind of a lot of times two different events
2: yeah yeah, no, that's that's certainly true. And if you look, I mean, going back to Apple and iTunes for a second, you look back, you can go, well, they had it all wrapped up because they had the shop front and they had the hardware, you know, the, the sexy hardware device. And but the thing is, I mean, they weren't the only company that had it wrapped up like that. You know, in the Wintel world, there were others that had it seemed to have it, you know, mm. ambushed and still didn't succeed.
0: I had my Winamp player, and then I could get the different skins yes. on yeah. my.
2: Why I remember that
1: one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, great. And, and uh, you know, I, th- I remember thinking the iPod I, when the iPod was in. I was in college, and I was in a uh, internet technologies class. And we were talking about the iPod, which was coming out the next day. And I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) I have a hard drive right here with all my music, plus this awesome book of CDs. I can remember, you know, when you're in Silicon Valley, you do a lot of meetings,
2: you know, over over a Starbucks or something. I can remember on separate occasions, uh, a guy sitting down and telling me about cells of social activity, you know, where basically people... Are connected to each other so it's sort of like email but instead of it being a private thing you're sort of connected to all of your friends (laughs) and so you have these cells and it would grow and grow and grow and I'm like hmm hmm." well sounds intriguing you know I can remember that as a day I can remember another time when a company told me about community TV channels about the idea of having a, a channel with Ten thousand different shows on it, you know, so that even your lo- your local polo club could have their own little <laughs> channel on it and stuff. And and in in both cases, it was at least five years, if not more, before you heard about any actual product that was making an impact in that in that particular sector.
0: Oh wow! So are you how active are you uh, on social media? Does it do you?
2: i averagely active for somebody of my age. I think <laughs> you know, um, I I write it myself. Uh, you know, I I would be embarrassed to have somebody else do it for me, which some celebs do. You know, it would never feel right to have somebody else do it. So I do write it myself. And I mean, I use it for promotion, I have to say. You know, I'll write something saying, only a few tickets left for tonight's show, at the uh, second show at the Hollywood Forever, you know. And, and sometimes I just do things for fun, you know. Um, uh, Facebook is more like, I used to blog a lot. I've kind of cut that back because I do more, spend more time on Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And my only regret actually is that, you know, back in the day, even before blogging, when it was like f- online forums and things like that, people wrote really in-depth analyses of my songs and lyrics and things like that. And now it's down to 140 characters. And
3: so,
0: yeah. were, they, know, r- were they right or did, that, did anyone ever get it? Or were you I like didn't mind
2: thing? if they were right or wrong, you know. I just liked the fact that the intelligent people were indulging in analyzing this stuff, you know. And they even wrote fan fiction type things where they take characters from my songs you know Europa and the submarine and they write their own little you know things where they just took off on on the 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 mythology really of of my songs
0: when did you go online for the when did you start going
2: online while i was online from the 80s you know with a trs80 you know Mm -hmm. uh, radio shack with acoustic couplers i had a trs80 and and, you know when you're on tour in those days that was the only connectivity you had other than pulling over the tour bus with a pocket full of quarters you know by a phone booth you know who
0: else is out there at that point because it almost kind of feels to me it almost sounds like you know (laughs) it almost sounds like you know you're Vespucci, or something, just out in the sea, and then you there really was just not a lot of people with ships at that point. No, like, oh, there weren't. Oh, there's a guy way over there. Hey, what's that fucking no, guy no, talking No,
2: about? no, it was exactly like that. Yeah. And one night I got into a chat with Barry Manilow. <laughs> 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 oh, my- I love that he was techie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was he was very techie and he was hilarious.
0: <laughs> how did you know how did you guys find each other Like, because did... he was called Barry Manilow
2: <laughs> <laughs> I write the blogs that yeah, me. everybody else in there was like a tour manager you know
0: I remember like the, oh, just, wow. just hearing about the early day so was this on uh, was, was this on one uh, any particular fo- like where were you going was it were they news groups or was it forums or
2: I'm not sure if they had that kind of construct yet, really. You know, I, d- I mean, no, I don't know what it would have been in. Was those it like days.
0: a chat relay?
2: Something like that, yeah, like an IOS. Just table. looked like war games.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you, you know, even when you hear about the early days of cellular technology, it was like, well, there were only so many channels, and yeah. so. There were, like, you know, just a handful, so they were basically, if you wanted to make a call, other people had to not be using
1: theirs, (laughs)
0: that you might, you know, you might pick up and go, oh, sorry, you're using, you know, like, my
1: mother had, my mother had the pole star in a bag, like, unzip it, and then. It was like you're calling to drop a nuclear bomb. You know, right. dial the thing. You know? I'll
2: tell you what, though, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, it's like you get when you're spoiled for choice. When you just have ultimate channels, then it, you just laziness creeps in. So, oh yeah. you know, at an, at every stage of my career, I'm at my most creative when I'm working in sort of rarefied air. You know, because it's still too new to really get your yeah. arms around. It's interesting to me that you're you're such a technological
0: guy, but having been to your house, your house is does not. I mean, you have you have that you have this really cool sort of sciencey piece on your you know like above the what is that by the way is it like an a...
2: oh above my fireplace yeah oh, it's like a switchboard generator from a telephone exchange
0: oh it's really oh, it, cool yeah. but 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 your house is very not I mean it's not that it doesn't seem that technological in...
2: you know I go there to escape it really you know it's the last thing I want to do for relaxation sure. I just like to go for a walk in the marshes or you know sit yeah. sit and stare out to the sea.
0: It's a night it's really cool and and there's not guys there's not sand there's just like billions and billions of shell pieces right. on on the beach <laughs> and it done. feels really cool on your feet yeah <laughs> <laughs> it flips me out like if you i mean listen i um when i was in high school uh aliens ate my buick was in my Cassette player, nice. So back when people <laughs> needed cassette players,
1: Kyle. Very appropriate. Uh, I wish that was open. Oh, that I knocked. I know. i just yeah,
0: water you were on myself. On yeah, my cassette. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it like that. That album to me was like that was so much of my senior year of high school was mm. Ali- Aliens ate my Buick. Mm. And so if you had said to me like, someday you're gonna go to Thomas Dolby's house and just hang out, uh, I, I don't think I would have believed it. I don't think I would have believed it. Um, And maybe you didn't. Maybe I didn't. Did it not happen? Fuck
1: you guys.
3: (laughs) What? (laughs) It was crazy as Thomas Dolby was thinking at that time. I wonder if I'm going to meet some kids in high school right now. Oh, well, you (laughs) know I'll tell
2: you a funny story. So um, recently I read in two different Tom York interviews that he went to school, same school as me, true, Abingdon School, but that one day he walked into the practice block at his school, and there was this guy with a synthesizer that he built himself, and it was Thomas Dolby, and this is what inspired him to get into, you know. Whoa. America. So now we went to the same school, but I had been gone for eight years by the time any of radio had ever went there. No, no, um, you got to just take the credit on that one well well yes and no I mean in a way I'm not sure if
1: I can let it go by you know are you just not admitting you were the creepy guy that hung out at high school way too long
3: that's the song it's based on him I'm a creep <laughs> yes, right.
0: it's a uh, so, so what happens now is basically Thomas starts to flutter a little bit and then we find out he's just been a holographic projection this entire time from that switch he's place really sitting in his fireplace, at this fireplace. he's right really right yeah he's really actually staring at him uh, have you did you do you, do you know Tom York have you ever worked nope, with radio nope, no never
2: mess him okay um, actually yeah, it's good. you got me thinking now it's like I could do all the podcasts in a night
0: you could if Oh, I
2: could do that. Yes. if you could do that <laughs> just like that yeah no this. you can't do that
0: no, you get uh, in five years. Someone else is right. going to do it. Right. In five years, someone's going to actually have it. Yeah. So, uh, so in general, everything good. You, ha- you happy? Was stuff.
2: Yeah, no, really happy. Uh, I mean, I've had an incredible five or six years where I've done exactly what I wanted artistically. This is sort of since I came back to music, and not had to compromise anywhere along the road. You know, so so I've had nobody breathing down my neck. Never looked at a sheet of figures or an excel and thought "Mm, maybe i should do this instead and cut some costs or make more money or whatever purely artistic driven decisions all the way down the road and uh, it's been absolutely great uh, but yeah. i'm not sure if it's sustainable
0: <laughs> <laughs> well if 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 it seemed that you know something you were working on was going to blow up like top of the charts again would you and this might be a dumb question but would you want that to happen or would you not because of all the shit that comes with it
2: well i think it is much more celebrity driven now even than it was when i started you know because you could when i started you could be uh, a wonderful musician and not really give a toss about your appearance, you know, and and that was sort of okay. You know, but these days that's just not true because it's just generation by generation. Each new star that's come through has ticked more and more boxes. You know, like you were saying, you've also got to be able to market yourself and the rest of it. And you know, you look at these awful talent shows, but the average contestant on there, you know, can sing and dance like a fool, and they look like a model. You know, and uh, and and I don't know how it happens any more than I know how athletes keep breaking world records. You know, (laughs) but our species is evolving, and we're just getting better at jumping over a bar or or you know running around a track or whatever and that's similar with entertainers. Well, I think a lot of it probably has to do with the localization of
0: our our of our global culture is that it's it, it's I, I assume that a lot of those people were out there before but there was just no way to find them. And so now you could, you know, you could live in any you could live in sub-Saharan Africa but if you had an internet connection and you uploaded the right video mm. then all of a sudden mm. they're going to find, you know, like people are going to Everyone has a beacon in their pocket and in their home, which which we didn't
2: have before. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's certainly true. But I mean, I think the the ante has just gone up and up and up in terms of the technical ability. Yeah. And then the other thing is that you know, the main consumers of music, whether they're paying for it or pirating it, are you know hot young people that are you know looking to mate with somebody. I mean, that's just <laughs> it's always been that way. And and the primary performers, they're going to pay any attention to is going to be people they want to fuck.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: I'm a 55-year-old
1: bald white
2: guy. You know, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So I'm sort of ruling myself out. I mean, by um, rights, I should be producing. I should be in the backseat, you know, out of the limelight. Yes, but so. you
1: just walk outside Sunset Strip. Say you're a 55-year-old what, bald white guy. No problem. No problem. <laughs> no problem.
0: I still do believe, though, that, that, that content – has a lot more say necessarily than it used to that yeah. the right piece of content at the right time that it doesn't matter who you are what you look like it'll ca- i mean i think people are more ex- even as even in as much as the like the american idolization of our culture i still believe that um so much because we're a niche culture and so much weirdness has been embraced that I don't think it. I don't think it necessarily. I mean, maybe to maybe to go that pop star track, like the you know the Britney or the Gaga track, maybe. But I still think you can be you can look like whatever. But if you make a cool thing, then enough people are gonna you know you can reach enough people directly, and it still can it can
2: still can work. Yeah. No, I think you're probably right, and I think also things things uh, you know it's like swings and roundabouts. Really. I mean, you know, I'll give you a good example. So there's this band in the UK that I, I used to produce Prefab Sprout. Mm -hmm. who I adore and I did two and a half albums for them and, and loved those albums and they're fronted by a genius songwriter called Paddy McAloon who is very, very reclusive and very reactionary and his health is not that good and he lives in the far north of England and uh, he's gotten very ornery over the years, and his stuff has become more and more rare. But he doesn't really do interviews very much, and because of his bad health, he's put on quite a lot of weight. He's got you know white hair and a beard, and he wears these sort of strange um, uh, dystopian specs and things like this. And um, he's five years ago. If he was reviewed, people might sort of say yes. But have you seen Paddy recently? But now he's gotten to a point where he's viewed as a sort of mythical character. Mm -hmm. And and a really interesting thing happened. Um, He he recorded a new album. And there'd been a tribute site called the Prefab Sprout Project where fans had been – because he hadn't been putting much out. uh, Fans had been doing tribute versions of his songs or writing songs in the style of, right? Most of them were pretty average, pretty bad. There's one guy on there who's actually very talented and sounds quite a lot like Paddy and is able to write songs, you know, that actually you could almost imagine would be a Paddy B-side. So here's what happens. So Paddy records a new album, hands it into his record company, and a secretary in the company leaks it to SoundCloud. So now there are ten original Prefab Sprout masters out on the internet flying around, and word goes out that they've been leaked. But somebody else says, no, that's the Prefab Sprout project. That's not really Paddy. That's a tribute thing. And it becomes very, very hazy, you know, whether this thing is real or not. And so this legend has grown up in the last six months of this legendary album that's going to come out. Have we actually heard the real thing or was what we, you know, it's almost like, you know, Elvis has left the building. Hmm. And now Paddy has been photographed once or twice up in his native place, wearing a white suit with a cane, dark glasses, you know, standing by a stream. And he's like the Yeti. I mean, he's, he's, he's become this mythical creature. And... In Britain, we don't have very many of them. We don't have very many indigenous, homegrown sort of weirdos. You know, what we're really good at is recycling great grooves that we steal from africa or jamaica <laughs> or detroit or wherever it is you know we put a bit of a cool twist on them and re-export them to the rest of the world And you guys all think it's original <laughs> <laughs> but in fact the se- our dirty little secret is that we have very little indigenous music you know so here is a true indigenous original that you know dwells in the hills of county durham and people are suddenly very very excited about him Oh, that's, oh wow. really, that's that's really cool. cool. That's an awesome yeah, story
0: yeah. Uh, So we'll check out the prefab sprouts as mm-hmm. well. Um, well, it, this has been so much fun and, and I, I hope that you get some rest. I Thank hope that you, you, yeah. I hope that you just you can go home and stare out at the sea for yes. a month or so. Yes. What do you what do you what, what's next?
2: Well, I'm, I've got to edit um, video from my tour. so I just finished three months of touring and, and I did the film, and then in the middle section of the show, in the, in the end section, I played songs. In the middle section of the show, I interviewed local celebs. And they might be musicians, they might be writers, sound designers, and so on. Just just people in each city. That's what I was going to do. All right. Well, yeah. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's what I was going to do with you, with what you asked me to do. <laughs> that I had... I'm just breaking your balls. My balls are broken. Okay. Um, so uh, so we, we filmed these interviews, and they included people like Reggie Watts, yep. nice. like um, Walter Murch, mm-hmm. legendary sound designer who did all of Coppola's stuff, you know, won an Oscar for Apocalypse Now and did The Conversation and um, uh, American Graffiti and stuff like that, uh, through to Storm Large, who came on stage and did a version of Key Her Ferrari, uh, Through to in in Hollywood, I I interviewed two film slash TV composers Michael uh, Giacchino, who does most of JJ Abrams stuff, uh, Star Trek and Lost and Alias and so on. (laughs) Lost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got paid every week for that. Genius. No, but he is amazing. I I love the Alias theme too. That guy writes really cool stuff. He does.
2: And Dave Porter, who did Breaking Bad, which featured two of my songs. Uh, and uh, so yes. I just interviewed them on stage and talked about so it's kind of like what I'm doing is sort of a bit like inside the actor studio but for the sound and music world mm-hmm. you know where that show gets a different kind of interview you know out of a, out of a, an actor or a director you know than than you'd see on you know Letterman and so I'm going to try and make a show out of it so I'm just going to edit these videos and put them on YouTube as a series and uh, see if I can get somebody to back me to go do it uh, for real
0: oh that's a really cool idea yeah cool. Yeah. Y- yeah you I, I'm pretty sure I heard you in the in the A1 car wash, right? On Breaking Bad. Yes,
2: hyperactive.
0: Yes, hyperactive. Yeah, which, by the way, is a really fun. So I hope this doesn't upset you. It's a really fun song to do karaoke because uh-huh. it's it's the song so energetic, and I love the, the videos. I the video is still burned into my brain oh, of the sort of puppety mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah. your body's all. Mm. Um, and now i now I can't get, and now it's what what's in my head is a I just want the key to her. Yeah. Right. around it. <laughs> like that. That fucking album. Now I'm going to have to go, I'm going to go back and listen to Alien. You know, Sing
3: more of a songs. <laughs> How am I doing? How am I doing?
0: <laughs> um, but uh, it's good to see you and, and, you know, we've sort, it's been fun to kind of become email pals with you and anytime you're over here, please let me know and I would love to take
2: you out to a meal. I'll do that, Chris. That would be great and uh, thanks for having me on. Of course, yeah. Good to see you. Thomas Dolby.
0: Enjoy your burrito, everyone.
2: Cool. Where's where's enjoy your burrito coming? Is that like your catchphrase? It's a catchphrase that. Are there actually burritos here? Because if so, I could murder one. (laughs) Do you want a a burrito? Well, Lisa and I are going to grab something before I have to go to the
0: airport. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, um, enjoy your burrito, just really quickly, was uh, when Jonah first moved to Los Angeles, he was broke, and he used to like to go to this one burrito shack, and the only good part of his day was eating that burrito. And halfway through, he would get really depressed because he knew he was about to be done with it. And then the burrito would be done.
3: And Real dark time.
0: Yeah. Real dark time. And so he said, he said what he ended up having to do was to learn to enjoy the burrito as it was happening. And so on one of our first episodes of the podcast, 445 episodes mm-hmm. ago... We, he told the story and then it sort of became this mantra and at the end we said oh enjoy your burrito in other words enjoy the present as it's happening and so oh, that's that's yeah. the way that we end the the podcasts now because we up. we live so much in the future of the past and never really just kind of like
2: yeah. in the moment so,
0: that, yeah. that, so that's
3: I put it answer. in the most simplest of terms food
2: <laughs> enjoy a burrito in my household uh, we have burri- a burrito moment <laughs> um, because once with small children we, you know we had for three kids and, and we used to when we couldn't be bothered to cook we would go to Trace amigos and bring back burritos. And, uh, at one point, and this happens with small kids. You know, my wife was so upset with what was going on that, having just gone out to the Trace Amigos, she threw the burrito on the floor, jumped uh, as high as she could. And the content's exploded all over the uh, all over the, the kitchen cabinets, you know. I mean like in three sixty perfect. So um, yeah, this is known as a burrito moment. That's, <laughs> That's
3: great.
1: great.
2: I don't want to shoot that like
1: on a We're red camera. With like with the Wachowskis. Yeah. Yes Phantom
3: Just put a,
0: just put a bunch of cameras all around in a circle and explode the burrito in the middle. Just watch it spin.
1: Now leaving nerdist.com.